A good title for the work we're going to do today would be the Baroque Concerto Grosso and Beyond. We'll start by looking at a great example of the Concerto Grosso at the high point of its Baroque development, I suppose you could say, in the hands of Arcangelo Corelli, his Opus 6, Number 2. Then we look and see how the form has mutated by the mid to late part of the 18th century in the hands of no less a genius than Mozart. Finally, we look at how the form has developed and been reformed in the 20th century through the work of Bela Bartok and his Concerto for Orchestra. Now, I think the best way of looking at a Concerto Grosso is in terms of a kind of social model, that it is more democratic than, shall we say, the worst excesses of the 19th century romantic concerto. I often think piano concertos are particularly bad culprits in this respect, that sometimes it's a little bit like a very angry child stuck in a room carrying on, that's the soloist, and then the orchestra, like a bunch of very well-meaning and warm-hearted adults outside the room, just wondering how to help. The Concerto Grosso, as I say, is a much more inclusive form than that. For a start, it's about a group of soloists rather than one soloist on their own. And in the Concerto Grosso, that group of soloists are known as the Concertino. We're very ably served this evening with uh, Nicholas Whiting and Naomi Thomas, two violinists, John Center, the cellist, and Robert Court, the harpsichordist. They form our Concertino. The rest of the strings of the BBC National Orchestra of Wales form what's known as the Ripieno, the main orchestral body. Now, I say it's about democracy. It's about question and answer. It's about statement followed by statement. So the soloists will lay out a theme or an idea which the orchestra will respond to. It's not like the orchestra are, again, in the case of some of the more extreme 19th century solo concertos, it's not like they're cantering along behind just trying to keep up and providing at best a kind of warm carpet underlay. Here they have a very vivid and active responding role to what the soloists have to say. Now before we actually get into the music itself, one further little sort of historical thing to tell you, that uh, this is basically based, this concerto grosso is based on a concerto da chiesa, there were two types of, of concerto, or sonata actually before them, sonata or concerto da chiesa, sonata or concerto da camera. Now the da camera types were more about dance music, da camera meaning of the chamber, whereas da chiesa is of the church. So as perhaps you'd expect, da chiesa form, which this is one, is more about formal design. There's plenty of fugato in it, which is not strict fugue, but it's the idea of, well, say the first violin solo is setting out an idea, which then the second violin responds to the same idea, perhaps in a different pitch, and so on, but it doesn't follow the strict rules of fugue. Let's start by looking at the opening vivace, which sets out in a wonderfully brilliant and virtuosic way the palette of colours that Corelli is going to be exploring. First Allegro with a bit of Fugato. Now you've heard there, you get the first violin coming in, then the second violin, and then the cello, the solo cellist comes in. But in, of course in Corelli's day, the cello hadn't really fully emerged as a potential solo instrument, or at least as a melodic instrument. So it's interesting that his part is doubled with the violas from the Ripieno section. Then we go into a gorgeously rich adagio. And uh, of course, as is often the case with Baroque music, all you get on the page is the code, if you like, the bare notes with the odd dynamic direction. It might be forte, it might be piano, it might be loud or soft. 
what is down to the player, to the performer, is to imbue and infuse into this code, this very bare code on the page, interpretation. And I wanted just to share with you, just for the sheer fun of it, how we might play this gorgeously Richard Dodge if we were to do it with a really fat, wide vibrato, totally tasteless, or rather totally out of keeping with contemporary fashion. to stop now before we all get a little bit over hot up here. That's a little bit too much protein in the diet if we play it exactly like that. In actual fact what we do is quite a simple, quite a refined sound on a section like that but just with a little sprinkling of vibrato just to add a touch of warmth. So that then takes us on to the next section, another vivace, exactly the same material as we heard at the start only it's now changed into the key of C major having originally been in F and essentially this is how the piece continues on short sections of contrasting material and you can hear the dialogue which goes on between one soloist and the other say in the case of the two violins or between the two violin soloists and the rest of the orchestra this sort of quicksilver content to this music was obviously very much the tradition at the time this is the way these pieces were written short section followed by a very different short section in a way I think they're quite a good metaphor for how Corelli himself seems to have been. One contemporary account of him describes him as being almost archangelic-like in his patience and his virtue. Someone else at the same time describes him, this is as a performer, for being absolutely demonic, that his eyes would go red like fire, and indeed his eyes would roll as if he was in some kind of agony. I'm glad to say that here in the BBC National Orchestra of Wales there's not much sign of that. Let's play the next Allegro. Again, a fugato section. to the next section which is a Largo Andante obviously you get much slower music here and it's ravishing and quite naked in its style it's set up principle only by the concertino the three soloists with the continuo let's just play from the second beat of bar 99 response.
There follows another Allegro section, which is more of the same kind of fugato. So we'll skip over that now and look at the grave, which follows that. Grave, another musical term meaning slowly. And this is very rich. Again, on the page, it looks quite bald. You get a chord, then a rest, then another chord, then another chord. And what we've chosen to do is to give the harpsichord, in the very capable hands of Robert Cortes, a chance to fill in the gaps. walking bass. You can hear these endless, unresolved harmonies, a tremendously kind of restless quality to the music. And then there's a final allegro, which zips along at two in the bar. And this is probably the best example, the best opportunity throughout the entire Concerto Grosso to hear absolutely this sense of dialogue between the concertino and the orchestra. Strong sense of contrast in two and four bar phrases. <laughs> So let's now play this exquisite example of late 17th, early 18th century concerto grosso form. I say that in the, the dates are quite blurry. No one quite knows when Corelli wrote this last set of concerti grossi. A ravishing example of light and shade, and most importantly of all, the beginnings of dialogue between soloists and orchestra. Thank you. 
Ladies and gentlemen, would you give a very warm welcome coming on stage now, the oboist, David Cowley, the clarinetist, Robert Plain, the bassoonist, Robert Codd, and the horn player, Sue Baxendale. <laughs> the Symphonia Contratante form was becoming increasingly popular in Paris in the early 1770s, and Mozart went to Paris with his mother, before arriving in Paris, he was in Mannheim, where he heard what was probably then the greatest orchestra in the world, that orchestra that Charles Burney memorably described as being an army of generals. There were amongst them some incredible wind players who, when Mozart arrived in Paris, also happened to be there. He'd got to know them a bit, and he, there was obviously a lot of mutual admiration going on. He said to them, I'll write you a piece, and we'll get Le Gros to put it on in one of his concerts spirituels. Unfortunately, there was a rogue in the mix in the shape of a composer called Cambini, who was very much the king of these concerts spirituels at the time. He'd been embarrassed and infuriated by Mozart on a previous occasion when Mozart had improvised a quartet of Cambinis at the piano from memory and interpolated his own music in between the sections of the piece, showing perhaps how it might be improved. Cambini, as you can imagine, didn't like this one little bit, so he got Leroux to drag his feet over the copying of the parts, which meant that the piece was then not ready to be performed. Leroux, by this time, had all the manuscripts and all the materials relating to this piece, and Mozart left Paris without any of them. But he wrote this excellently cheeky and defiant letter to his father when he said, well, Leroux thinks he's got all the materials and he'll probably take it and pass it off as the work of one of his pet composers. But rest assured, when I get home, I'll write it all out again. It'll be just the same as it was before. We're going to look at his Sinfonia Contratante K297B, which is for four wind soloists and orchestra. It has that odd... Kirchel number because no one's absolutely certain if it was written by him or not. <laughs> I, I, for one, believe that it was. If it was written by anyone else, they had a damn clever insight into Mozart's mind. He uses E-flat major, which is a classic key for Mozart, and it's used with all the usual deafness and brilliance and depth of, of sound and colour that you would expect from Mozart. I want to play you, first of all, the first subject. Of course, we're now in the classical periods. So we're into sonata form, which is sort of only in kind of embryonic phase during the Baroque, gradually developing and developing. By the classical period, it had become the absolute mainstay of composition, where you have theme A and then theme B in what's known as the exposition. Then you have a development section when theme A and theme B are developed, modulated, played around with in all manner of ways. And then you get, finally, a recapitulation section where all the original material comes back together, but heard differently, if you like, through the various transformations that have occurred to it along the way. I'm going to play you the first subject, which is the first music that the orchestra have without the soloist, right at the top of the piece, and then we'll look and see how it's developed with the four soloists and how they then enter into a dialogue immediately with the orchestra. So here it is in its original form.
So now we, we hear the same thing again, but this time it's with the soloist joining for the very first time. And listen after the statement of the first part of the theme, which you hear just in the four soloists, how then they enter immediately into dialogue with various other elements of the Tutti Orchestra. So now we'll play the second subject. Again, this is before the soloists have joined at all. Then we'll look at what they make of it. Here it is with the soloists, and again you hear how they join in a happy kind of union with various members of the Tutti Orchestra. I'm going to just show you another little passage of the soloists on their own, just to show you just how much Mozart was able to create a sense of equality between the four of them. I was talking earlier about how in Corelli's day the cello hadn't fully emerged as a melodic instrument in its own right. By Mozart's day, the bassoon in particular was still struggling to find its appeal as a melodic instrument. Mozart changed all of that forever. There is a new type of democracy in all of his music. So you find, again, cellos, violas, double basses even in the string orchestra become melodic instruments. And it's certainly the case here for totally equally balanced, not contestants, but friends. Another example of the same thing here, really. You get this uh, melodic fragment, which is picked up, first of all, in the solo horn and solo bassoon. Unlikely instruments to start a melody, as it were, or certainly before Mozart, that was the case. And play Tutti, please, H. <laughs> So 
So now finally to the cadenza. Cadenza, of course, is an opportunity for the soloist or soloists to show their technical prowess, their extreme virtuosity, all the ways that they can take a theme for a walk, as it were. Now, in Mozart's day, cadenzas were invariably not written out by the composer. They would have been improvised by the soloist. But obviously, if you've got four soloists, as we have here now, you can't very well improvise in any particularly useful way. So Mozart did write it down. And what the cadenza shows is just how brilliantly Mozart could write for the character of each of these four instruments, how he could take the character and actually take it to quite extreme ends. The oboe and the horn writing in particular are wonderfully melodic and bright. The bassoon, very characterful, very driving, again with these touches of melody which you would never have expected in a bassoon part from any time previously, and particularly listen to what the clarinet's doing. Remember the context of this. The clarinet was only just emerging as an instrument in any shape or form. Mozart seized upon it with alacrity and could immediately see the manifold possibilities this instrument afforded, particularly this kind of harmonic sheen writing for the clarinet, almost like an Alberti bass at times, where you've got these broken chords, very fast figures, really exploiting the dexterity and the warmth of the instrument. So they're all on an equal footing. No longer is there a bass instrument or some bass instruments or some fill-in, some sort of sandwich filler. These are four people working absolutely in a kind of equal level of harmony and respect.